we ask your blessing upon our time now. We pray that you would help us to ponder these things. We pray that you would help us, by the power of the Spirit, to figure ways to do these things in our time and place. We pray this in Jesus' name. My text to, to launch this off is Psalm 20, verse 4 and 5. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. I got to get right up there, huh? So we see here that the idea of plans is actually a good thing. Oftentimes we see in the scripture the idea of plans uh, for people doing things wickedly, not doing it within the will of God, come out as something that's bad or evil. And I think we tend to skew that way as Christians, particularly when it comes to things regarding religion. We think that planning is, is a bad thing. It's an anti-pious thing. So today I'm going to be talking about the church planting enterprise. Um, there's a number of things that that we'll be discussing this morning, and, and part of it uh, are things that may be related simply to church planting, and so you might think that that's something irrelevant to you. Well, this is also a way to do church revitalization. I think you'll find some connections in here with a lot of areas of life in the church, but I want to talk about uh, a little bit of the history of, of the church before we get into that. And before we talk about that, I want to talk about the idea of enterprise. Enterprise. That seems kind of strange for us to talk about the church as an enterprise. And I think partially that's because we've had this church growth movement that was very popular in the last 20 to 30 years, tended to overemphasize the business aspects of the church. And so we've kind of defaulted to the exact opposite extreme. But Webster's describes, go ahead, back to that one. Uh, enterprise is a project or undertaking that is especially difficult, complicated, or risky. So, Church planting is more than an enterprise, but it's not less. Church planting is more than an enterprise, but it's not less. So let's go ahead and talk about the church as an enterprise, and let's, let's sort of briefly go over the history of the church, because I want us to think in a certain way about our time and place. So the church began as a marginalized, persecuted enterprise. Remember, enterprise is a, a plan or an endeavor that involves risk, it involves difficulty. It was very difficult in the early church. Oftentimes you had to meet in back rooms. You had to do things secretly in catacombs. But the church was longing for the day when it could come out into the open. And so when we move on through the history of the church, we see that when society collapsed, it emerged as a central institution. So the barbarians, the Volkavandrum, where you've got these Goths roaming on the edge of the empire, and they all come pouring in at a certain point in time, an auspicious time, and things break down, kind of like the time and place in which we live. The barbarians were at the gates. Oftentimes the barbarians were also Nesmoran Christians of some sort. But they overrun society. It collapses. So in the middle of this is the church. Now the church has been percolating for four centuries by this point in time. It's undergoing persecution for centuries. It's being hardened. It's being disciplined. It's learning how to organize things. And so when society collapses, we find the church is the last institution standing. Now, you may notice here the word basilica. When you think of the word basilica, you oftentimes think of some sort of a church that looks like a cathedral. But basilica is actually drawn from the Greek word basilikos, which means royal. It's also from the root word basilus, which means a king. 
So oftentimes we've got these etymological terms and then they, they come into uh, more meaning over time. And in this case, the idea of a king and a royal palace actually translates into what would be the town hall. So in the ancient Roman world, the town hall is kind of like a local mall. So if you have a mall that's got uh, grocery stores attached to it, and you happen to have the city hall there as well, and all the DMV offices and everything, that's what a basilica was in the Roman Empire. You had, you had the seat of the province, so the governor oftentimes had his offices there, and then you had this large portico courtyard, and that's where all the merchants were. It was a central place for planning, for business, for commerce, for civic society, courts would operate within the, the region of the Basilica. But when all this collapses, we see that the church steps in and becomes the Basilica. And so going on from here, when we think of the word Basilica today, when Roman society collapsed, the church filled the gap and Basilica became synonymous with a large church. Now we tend to think of the Basilica and the idea of a church as being just a pious institution. We tend to think of the church as, as being something that cared for religious culture, but that's not how it operated. So when Roman society collapses and the church becomes the basilica, we launch off into the age of Christendom. And through the Middle Ages, the church built culture. So this idea of having now basilicas becoming cathedrals, cathedra, the seat of a bishop, so these large regional churches that are attached to all these organs of culture, the commerce revolves around, and that's why, you know, when you go to European cities, a lot of times they'll have uh, various codes where you can't build higher than some of their, their historic structures. And when you find cities like that, places like Cologne, you'll have the, uh, Cologne, Germany, you'll have the larger buildings, the industrial sections kind of on the outside of the city, but in the old city, the largest building, the most imposing building is Cologne Cathedral. And that's, that's the way society operated under Christendom. So, the church launches universities. The church provides for art. The church provides concepts and ideology that lie behind commerce and how that operates within a society. And so the church was a central institution during the age of Christendom. The church was a savage institution spawning Christendom until the modern age. Now, we live in an age where Christendom seems like a weird term. It seems like something out of a you know, a classics class or something on the history of the, the Middle Ages. But Christendom is really the Christian faith percolating through cultures, transforming cultures, and then become the central institution of culture. And with that in mind, Christendom is actually alive and well in the world today. We have the, shall I say, misfortune or the providence of living in a time and place where Christendom is, is receding, but it's alive and well in the global south. You'll see things like the nation of Uganda, and everybody gets upset because there's this idea that they're crimping everybody's LGBTQ rights. Well, it's because Christianity has now percolated out into the culture. It's affecting their laws. It's affecting how they do business. It's informing their culture on how to form families and what family means. And so in some ways, Christendom is larger than it's ever been. It's having a larger reach people-wise. But in these global southern cultures, it hasn't percolated fully through where it's reaching all the cultural organs, lifting it up, and then making it a leader. So we're living on the fumes of Christendom in the West, and we're living in a time of what we might call post-Christianity. But Christendom spawned the modern age, and in the modern age, secular culture marginalized the church through the religious uh, sphere. And I would say this, we as a church allowed this to happen. 
If you look at the age of the Renaissance, you know, people think of the Renaissance as rebirth of, of all this kind of knowledge, and that all happened in the secular sphere. It really starts with a lot of things involving the church. So Constantinople collapses in the middle of the 15th century. They got all these texts, Greek texts of classics, um, church fathers, and all these, these Greek theologians arrive in the West, and it sparks off this thing we call the Renaissance. But what happened was the church then, as the Renaissance percolates through the culture, and you've got Christendom already creating universities, and now there's these new areas of study, and you've got people like Erasmus, who people say is the last real Renaissance man, the last man who knew everything about everything, because things become specialized. So the sciences begin to break off into smaller and smaller fragments, more especially. And the church says, hey, we want to be a science too. They always were. They were the queen of science, theology. But they want to be recognized by the academy, and the church acquiesces to simply becoming a department of life. So religious life over here, church is over here, oh, business is over here, um, academic learning is over here. Sometimes people from here, they train over in this other department. But the church is seated ground. And so moving along here, we've reached the end, the tail end of Christendom in the West. And it's time for the church to prepare for the next age. I want to say this. Whenever you see great movements, collapses, transitions to new ages, the Holy Spirit's always moving ahead of us. Okay, we can learn from the past, but we should always be looking forward to see what the Holy Spirit's going to do next. God's always moving into the future. So, you know, I, I love the frontier age. I, I wish I was with Daniel Boone coming across the, the Appalachian Mountains for the first time, you know, walking through forests filled with buffalo in western Pennsylvania. But we can't go back. We can learn from that, but we shouldn't be romantic about replicating the past. The Spirit's moving ahead of us. Seems like about every 500 years, God moves on culture, makes dramatic changes, and they tend to, it seems, revolve around some great theological question. So you get around 500 AD, right? Big question. What's the Trinity? What's the nature of God? Who's Jesus? Is Jesus the God-man? What does that mean for him to be both God and man? You get up to the 10th century. Again, high Middle Ages, big transition. Um, people moving into, into a, a semi-modern age, commerce, the age of exploration is beginning, the high Middle Ages. And what do you have? You got this big theological question. What does it mean, the God? Cortus homo, right, Anselm? You know, trying to figure out why does, he, why does Jesus have to be both God and man? 500 years later, you've got the Reformation. The question is, how is a man saved? And here we stand, right at a 500 year mark once again. What are some big questions? I'm not sure what the big question is, but I think some of them might be the nature of the church. What is the church? Why are we fragmented? What is, what is the elemental things that should unite the church? And perhaps one of the big questions, and I think you guys will get this picture because I think most of us are on the same page, eschatology. How does the world end? Because that affects how we live our lives in the world right now. So the Spirit's moving ahead of us. So this is an age of planting and replanting the church. Planting and replanting the church. Some of you may be called to church plant in a new place with a new church. Some of you may be involved with revitalizations of churches or communions that have, that have kind of gone sour over time. But it's an age of planting and replanting, doing something old and doing something new. The church is an enterprise. Again, enterprise. A project or task that involves difficulty or risk. All right, so why do we like, dislike this idea of, of the church as an enterprise? 
Well, I think there's a couple reasons, and this is just two of many. It seems impious, doesn't it? Can we talk about uh, uh, business plans for, for churches? When we talk about doing budgets for churches, when we talk about having a marketing plan for a church, it strikes people as being impious. In fact, I, as I was doing this, I, I put some of my notes up on social media, and I got a lot of pushback. You have people saying, what do you mean? We should be praying and seeking the Lord's will. It's like, oh, yeah, obviously. I mean, who, who just, I guess some people do that, but the idea that, that you would actually use some, some tools, some useful tools that the church has found useful over the centuries, strikes people as impious, and that we should be sitting around in a room praying waiting for the spirit to fall, and then we'll figure out what to do as we go along. And you'll see churches that are planted like that. I don't think it's a good way to plant a church, but you'll see people that do that. And the other thing that, going back, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the other thing that, that I think uh, sort of poisons our minds is the idea of the church growth, growth movement. And I've thought about this quite a bit. I've wondered, what, what was the problem with the church growth movement? So planting these churches, you know, Willow Creek, uh, uh, Saddleback out in California, Many of these large churches were church plants that then grew into large churches, but oftentimes produced really bad fruit. And so they used all these tools, and so people look at that and they think that that's the problem. The tools are the problem. Well, here's what I think, and I thought kind of long and hard about this to, to kind of crystallize this. I think what happened with the church growth movement is they utilized these tools, but they forgot about the church. They forgot how to be the church and how to do church. So if you take these tools and, and th those tools are, are how you're going to structure the church. So you take these marketing tools, for example, and you, you go out and do a survey in your community and you ask people, what kind of church do you want? And you get 100 different responses, but guess what? 85% say, hey, we want to have a barista in the back of the service providing hot cappuccinos. It's like, okay, we can do that. You go out and find out what the name of the church is and by going out and taking surveys of the community. If that's what you're doing, then I can see why this would be a poisonous attitude toward the church. But if you're utilizing these tools to do this, which is we're not building businesses, I think that, that's where the, uh, the church growth movement got off track is they got caught up in all these business tactics and marketing skills, and they forgot how to be the church, and you'll see this a lot. I'm surprised how often I run into church planters, and they, they've read very little on ecclesiology. They thought very little on how is a church structure. Should you have a presbyterial structure? Should you have an episcopal structure? You got you got bishops. Should you be congregational? I'm, I'm struck at how many times when I talk to church planners about that, they don't even know what I'm talking about. Or how are you going to do church? How are you going to worship? Well, we'll figure it out as we go. Imagine doing that with any other product or service in the world. You go out and you're going to find out what your customer wants. You're going to structure that product for the customer, and you keep just kind of moving along, trying to figure out all the time what they want. Nobody does that, right? Remember Steve Jobs' old adage, people don't know what they want until you tell them? I mean, we, we tell them because we've got this. This informs us. We, we actually have a manual on what we're about, uh, the service or product. I hate to put it so crass of terms, but I think with this, this crowd, you'd understand. We know what we want to do. That's what we should be doing. So. Knowing what we want to do, which is we're rebuilding the church, we're trying to be a church, then we can utilize these various elements and tools. So the goal is to rebuild the church as a central institution of society. 
So I want to talk about planning and execution, and I think you might see some, some bleed over here. In fact, you got a, a, a one guy out here that's really helpful to me is Matt Thomas. I, I showed him my uh, business plan, and, and coming from the business world, and, and me being a little bit hyper-pietistic, he helped me uh, update the numbers. They were, they were too low on things. They were, they were, they were too piously oriented rather than being realistically oriented, and, and it's, it's good to kind of work that out and to get realistic uh, ideas on things. So let's take a look at planning and execution. All right, there's five things that you need to plant a church. And I would say this, if you're thinking about revitalizing a church, these, these very same elements will come into play. So first of all, you've got to have a core group. You've got to have a church planter. You've got to have the resources. You've got to have the place. And then putting it all together are your principles. So let's go ahead and talk first about the core group. Core group. I see churches all the time. They've got 12 people. And they're like, we want to plant this church. Bunches of us got together, and man, all the churches here in town stink. And we're going to start this new church in our living room here, and we got 12 people. Well, you need to have some kind of viability. So I recommend at least 40 to 50 people. You want to have at least 12 families, 12 different families. <laughs> okay, you're laughing because you've seen these. They're called kin kinship churches, okay? Where you got grandpa, you know, he's he, he's a a guy that went to seminary, but no, never seemed to be able to pass with people and have people follow him. But, you know, he had 14 kids, and they're all married. They got their families. They're going to start a church, and you go in there. Everybody's related to each other. Okay, you got to have some variety because um, that creates anti-fragility, okay? Fragile churches, kinship churches are very fragile. Okay, the, the, it's the kind of thing where if, if one of them gets offended, they're all going to leave. Or... They're always going to vote as a block. They don't like the new pastor because uh, Uncle Joe doesn't like him and Grandpa agrees. And you all better vote with me. And so it's, it's, it's got a, a high level of fragility because it doesn't have variety. You want to have variety? So you want to have at least 12 families? Um, I want to say this too. Once you've got your core group together, so your core core, do not expand beyond that. Okay, so you get your 40 to 50 people that are all on the same page. Okay, you can have events. You can start doing different types of studies or you know you can have meals over invite people that are on the fringe of your core group to come and learn about what you're doing but do not expand beyond your core group your core group is all the people that are in totally bought into your vision that you've worked with and trained with together and learned together and you know what you want to do if you start bringing people into that and you're going to get people saying hey uh, we, we think our uh, men should be wearing head coverings too uh -oh. I notice uh, some of you are uh, uh, sending your kids to Christian school. You're only allowed to homeschool here. If you've ever had people like that in your church, and you'll get them, and you get your church open, sometimes it's probably good to task an elder or deacons if you've got a guy that's really intense on something, sometimes really weird stuff, like we need to have handbells here. <laughs> and the whole church needs to learn how to play them. <laughs> And they're talking to a new visitor. You gotta go, hey, Bob, how's it going? Hey, have you met so and so over here? And, you know, move them along, okay? So, don't expand during the, the, the planning phase, all right? So, uh, your core group needs to have potential church officers. It needs to have potential deacons and elders within it. Uh, if you don't have this, you need to wait till you do. Because what happens is you'll get a church started, you get a pastor, and you never get elders, and you maybe have one deacon, and it goes on like that for years. And it becomes a real, a resource drain, not only on your church, but any churches that are assisting you. Because if you have a big blowout, they can't handle it at the church level, so they have to call in another church and the elders from the other churches, and it just becomes a big resource drain on everybody. So, 
do not plant until your core group has within it potential officers, uh, deacons, and elders within it. Um, you can't be single issue focused. We kind of touched on this already. Okay, you you want to, I always say this to people, and, and the funny thing is, I'm in the CREC, so most of evangelicalism considers us to be weird, but I always say, I want to plant a church that's not weird. You want to be as not weird as possible. We're already weird enough. Okay, we're all advocates of, of Christian education of some form or another, which is weird to evangelicals. Most evangelicals, the vast majority, still send their kids to public schools. So right off the bat, you know, we're viewed as kind of extremists. Um, I think most of us in this room have some affinity for traditional worship, which is extreme. It's, it's amazing how it seems extreme. And you say, yeah, we, we, have a, we have a keyboard, we use brass, we sing hymns. What? You don't have a cajon? Someone playing on the cajon and a guitar? What's the matter with you? Are you a heretic? Okay, so, but we can become weirder if we want to be. So I'm saying these things aren't necessarily weird in them, of themselves, but, um, you know, uh, being dogmatically homeschooling on everybody that walks in the door. Um, theonomy, I had, a, I had a guy in my church out in California. He would, for stocking stuffers, he would give you a rush to these uh, institutes of biblical laws. This big, giant dictionary of theonomy. It's like, Merry Christmas! By the way, I want to talk to you about this right now and every week. Okay, neo-agrarianism. Um, you know, we got people in our church and, you know, uh, the, the, the church planter down and well, actually he's a pastor who moved his whole church from California. He's got a little farm going. Okay, all cool, all cool. We start getting dogmatic about it. We've all got to have farms. Everybody needs 20 chickens or they're insane. We have to be completely impervious to the collapse. Okay, you don't want to be that, all right? So all these things, good in their own place, but it can't be dominant and it can't be your central vision. All right, so a desire to learn and grow in your core group, a desire to learn and grow. You want people that want to learn and grow. You don't want people coming in and saying, hey, yeah, I know how the church should be planted and I know everything about it already. I'm gonna tell you about it. You gotta have some flexibility. You gotta have some idea of contextualizing certain things. Like, what's the town like here? What's a demographic makeup? Is it a, is it a middle middle class community? Is there a lot of blue collar workers? Are there a lot of Spanish speakers? These things are important to know. Okay, we, we tend to shy away from it because it sounds like business tools, demographics, but you need to you need to know your community. And part of that is having a core group that wants to learn about the community, wants to reach the community you're in, wants to learn how to be better members of a church plant group. So willing to grow, willing to learn. So passing things along, reading books together, preparing for it, because you're actually doing a university education on how to plant a church is what you're doing when you're part of a church plant core group. Hospitality focused and joyful. Okay, your core group has to be hospitality focused and joyful. All the speakers I think touched on this to one degree or another. We're living in potentially the loneliest time in the West and in America in the history of our nation. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, uh, there were still ethnic neighborhoods around. 1970s, uh, we lived near Baltimore, Maryland. There was a Ukrainian neighborhood, Greek neighborhood. You know, there was Italians, Irish. They had their church. Hey, we all go to Mount Carmel. We all go to, you know, uh, Highland Town um, Eastern Orthodox Church. And then they got grandma, grandpa, uncles. They all live in the same neighborhood. Those neighborhoods are gone. Okay, there's new ethnic groups that have come in that, that have that, but... They tend to be non-Western, and sometimes they're kind of outside of our reach culturally. We should try to reach them, but my point is this. The cultures that we come from, uh, if we go back 100 years ago, 
People lived in farming communities and went to the same church together. Grandma and grandpa were a short ride away, but we're not like that. How many of you all are, are, have moved to this area from someplace potentially far away? Okay, quite a few, right? I would say probably at least half our church down in Buda is people that have moved down here. Uh, they made a new life, but they're not near grandparents anymore. They're not near their brother and sister and, and, and their nieces and nephews. We're not going to be able to put that genie back in the bottle. However, the church, as usual, is the last institution standing. And it's a place where we can act as a family, where we can live life together, where we can rebuild culture together. So hospitality is a central way to reach lonely people and bring them in. It's a central way to reach people, period, and bring them in. So you want to be hospitality focused. Now, if you're not, that's okay. But you've got to be open to, to becoming hospitality focused. You've got to be open to learning how to do hospitality. Hospitality is not entertaining. In our culture, we think hospitality is having a cocktail party and everything has to be perfect. Hospitality is doing what you normally do, preparing a little extra and inviting people into your life. So if there's dirty laundry in the, the next room and someone accidentally opens up the door, and I've done that before, I actually find it encouraging. Okay? I'm sure the, the lady of the house, if she knew I did that, would have been horrified. I thought it was a bathroom and opened up. It's like, oh, that's what they did. They took all their laundry and stuffed it on the floor. They're, Good for them. They're normal. Okay, so hospitality focused and joyful. Okay, I've, I've seen churches where, you know, they'll do hospitality, but man, you're pulling teeth, you know? And, and nobody smiles, and, you know, it's, uh, it's these old line Presbyterian churches are like that. They don't want you in their home. If they do, everybody's just grumpy, okay? You want to be joyful. We're, we're, on, a, we're on a mission. We're, we're on one of the greatest missions in the history of the world. And even in the midst of, of trials and, and suffering, it's always joyful with Christ. So, and then feasting together, you know, just like the people of God did in the Old Testament. You know, when they had the Passover uh, meal and they came together once a year, it was a joyful feast. They saved up 10% of their entire income and they spent it on food and drink and rich people shared with poor people and poor people that had some more over, they, they shared with everybody else. I mean, it was one gigantic Bible camp and a huge party all wrapped in one. So, that's, God likes that kind of stuff. All right, so... The church plan. You want a resourceful, entrepreneurial man. Okay, I, I, I think ideally you would find someone that, that actually has some entrepreneurial experience out of the world. Uh, it's surprising. Like I, I did a bachelor of business administration originally. I, I hadn't really thought about. It. I, I always thought I would become a pastor, but I didn't think it was something near term. And it has been amazing how the things that I learned with marketing and, and knowing how to do a, a, a spreadsheet budget. You know, being able to budget being able to put a marketing plan together. These are all very, very helpful. Also having just common skills, like maybe paying taxes or how to pull out um, various permits for things that you need to do. Having done things in the world is, is very helpful. And if you're entrepreneurial, I think church planning is, is a great place for someone that feels called to the ministry that has entrepreneurial skills because it's, it's, it's starting from nothing. You haven't seen it yet. And you're gonna, you're gonna build it from scratch and watch it grow. So there's a lot of interconnection with with other entrepreneurs. And I think uh, church plants are good places to be gathering places as a church for entrepreneurs as well. All right, so you want to have a guy that's resourceful, entrepreneurial. Um, you want to have a united, extroverted husband and wife team. Um, maybe some of you guys watched my talk that I did out in uh, County Before Country. Hopefully not, because there's a little bleed over and nothing out so. But when I was in the PCA, we would have church planners come in for their ordination exams. And I don't know how many times 
this would come up. So they always did really good with the theology. PCA's real good at uh, prepping people in their theological education. They ace that, and then at the end, they kind of just throw in you know, some, some questions about character. And this came up a number of times. What does your wife think about what you're gonna do? And I don't know how many times I heard some variation of this. I don't know, but I think she would be on board with it. I don't know, but I hope she will be. This is stuff that should have been thought out a long time before, because you are a team, a husband and wife team. Uh, women are gonna naturally gravitate toward your wife, and if your wife's a, a big black hole of um, you know, cynicism, I've seen guys like this, it'll drag the whole ministry down. So you need to have a united husband and wife team that, that has some appraisal of the difficulty of what the task is ahead. Because church planning is very hard. Okay? It's, it's, in some ways, it's easier, in my opinion, than pastoring a regular church because you can come in and create new structures. But it's also very hard because there's a lot of variables. Church plants are, are very fluid. People come, they don't like it after a year, they leave. If you've got a regular church that you've brought to, to the place of being stable, people kind of know what they're getting into. All right, so moving along. Church planner needs to be a visionary with excellent communication skills. I, I get pushed back from pastors on this. Pastors don't like that word visionary. I don't, I don't know why that bothers them so much. All you're saying with being a visionary is you see something before it's actually come into existence. And so I think every pastor should, should be a visionary of some sort. But a church planner in particular has to see a field with nothing on it and, and, to, and to be able to visualize and know what's possible there and then to be able to uh, communicate that vision. So they gotta have, not just when I say excellent communication skills, I'm not just talking about being a good preacher or teacher, but also somebody who's able to communicate and persuade people with the vision that they have. And a church planner, since he's leading people that are doing hospitality, needs to be skilled at hospitality. You can learn this. A little secret is everybody thinks I'm an extrovert. I'm actually borderline introvert extrovert. Sometimes I, I lean more introverted. And so, uh, you know, fake it till you make it. Sometimes after we have a big feast or something, I, I gotta go take a big giant nap and, and, and separate myself for a while because I, I get drained out. But you can learn these things and you can learn how to, um, you know, be a good host, learn how to cook food, learn how to serve people, um, learning little things about uh, courtesy. You know, thinking about how, how can I make this meal that I have people coming over to my house, how can, I, how can I make it more inviting to them? What kind of wine could I serve? How can I welcome someone into my home? And this should also translate out into when you visit other people's homes. You know, always bring a little gift. You want to you be hospitality focused, not just toward the hospitality you're providing, but also be cognizant when people provide you hospitality. They're extending themselves as well. So, all right. Yeah, talk about money. Yeah. People don't like talking about money when it comes to the church, right? Well, if you're gonna if you're gonna start a church, you're gonna need at least five to six thousand dollars per month internally. This will be a good gauge on whether you're ready to go. If you're in a small town in West Virginia, yeah, this could be adjusted down. If you're in a metropolitan region like Austin or Los Angeles, you need to adjust this up. But as as kind of a ballpark, internally five to six thousand. Externally, this means you went out and raised money from external funders. Two to three thousand in externals monthly. This is a very low figure on the bottom, but it's workable. Fifty thousand dollar money ball. How do you get that? You go raise it. Okay, a couple ways you can do it. You can fuse the two. Is the people that are going to be part of your core group commit to putting money aside so you've got a money ball, or you go out and raise it with with external funders? But you should have some sort of a money ball. I'd say this is like a bare minimum if you've got a very viable core group. Okay, say so you've got 
uh, 50 people that are in, and you've got another 50 you're pretty sure in. So on day one, you got 100 people. Um, you could get by with a smaller money ball. I think it's easily done if you've got the right group together with a $100,000 money ball. That's super duper low for denominational standards. Okay, if you're in the PCA today, I think they want you to raise 750000 before you even go on the field. But I, I think if you have a good viable core group, you can get around some of these edges. By the way, 750000 is kind of normed in with parachute church planners. They're going to drop in. Nobody there yet. Okay. All right. A musician who can accompany and teach singing. Uh, one thing that, that our circles are doing is recapturing what is worship. And first of all, the center of the church is worship. And this is another thing when you talk to evangelicals, you'll say, what is the centrality of the church? What's its, its primary, not just mission, but like how does it unpack that? People say, well, uh, mercy and justice, uh, missions. The one thing the church does and nobody else does in culture is worship the triune God. Okay, we're trying to recapture a sense of how to do that. And we, we just came out of a period of about 75 years where the church tried really hard and succeeded very well in trying to reinvent the wheel, and it, it's not working. And so we're, we're, this is where we are looking backwards, seeing what our forefathers did, and while we're trying to figure out new ways to do the same thing, we're going to have to appropriate what, what's been done before. And so we're learning how to sing hymns. We're learning how to sing the psalms again. So you need a musician who can accompany, and you need a musician who can help you to sing so that you look like and actually do know what you're doing. Okay, place, strategic locations, uh, metro areas, college towns. Why, why do I locate just these at this point in time? Because we're rebuilding and we're thin right now. Okay, there'll come a time when we can talk about planting churches all over the place, in little towns, little towns need churches. But right now, with, with the thin spread of serious Christians and the resources, we want to go to places that are going to have the largest impact. So that's going to be uh, metro regions around large cities, and it's going to be in college towns. I'll tell you a sad story. A friend of mine uh, was in a metro region that had about a million people, and they were in the last suburb, basically on the last street of the last suburb that was still mostly ranches of this metropolitan region. They had a building. They had a building. So they had this free building. That then determined everything they did. And I told them, you gotta think about selling that building, taking that money and moving where the people are. Okay, when you stood in the back of that church, you literally could see all the way to Texas, 100 miles away, just flat. And if you turn the other way, you can see the city really far away. But it was way on the boondocks. That takes a lot of commitment for somebody to come and visit you. So you wanna be in places that are, are very good targets for reaching people, various kinds of people. And so you want to put your facility in a prospective place rather than trying to drag people out to a facility that you might get for free. So if that temptation ever comes up, really think that through. All right, your church needs to be unique. Okay, you can't be like, hey, there's a uh, uh, you know United Reformed Church here. There's a PCA church that's pretty conservative across the street. There's an Anglican church. But there's no church of international theonomy. <laughs> Got to have that here. Those guys over there, they don't take rush duty serious enough. Or whatever it might be. You need to put your church where it's a unique part of the tapestry of the church in that region. You can't just be the church that's not like those other guys. So if, if you find yourself in a position where it's, there's other alternatives that are reasonable, you should consider going to one of those churches and revitalizing that. 
before you go and plant a new church because then you're just going to create competition and thin out the church even more. So places that are perspective, places where your church is unique. And gather and train your core group and launch big. You'll never get a second chance. Okay, we, uh, we gathered here um, over a year pulling our, our core group together. And there was a group that was here already with uh, people like Ben Walton and, and Sky Knippa and, and the Vemont family. They were, they were doing a Bible study and singing together already so that when we came, it, it wasn't such a stretch to, to launch off strong. When we were in California, we had people that didn't know how to sing hymns. We had people that had come from, from churches where they were, they were primarily singing praise choruses. So we, we literally spent an entire summer meeting every Sunday evening so people could continue going to the regular church. Going over to service, we would go through an entire service. We actually did the service, but part of it was to practice doing the service. And we didn't invite, invite people outside the core group. And we learned how to sing because the first day you have your worship service, you want to look like you've been doing it for five years. You want to look like you know what you're doing, and you want to actually know what you're doing. Okay, if you if you launch small and you launch uh, weakly and pathetically, that's who you're going to be. Okay, there was a, a group on the, the the northern coast of California that asked me to come in and assist them with um, launching their church. They had 25 people. I told them, "Hey, you're not ready yet," and they were totally convinced they were, and they launched off, and they never got over 20 people because that's who they are. And once you get that reputation in your community, let's say. It's, uh, King's Cross in Newton, right? We launch off real weak. We got 25 people. Word gets out. That's and people might not know precisely who you are, but they kind of heard the name. That's who you're going to be forever. So you want you want to launch strong. That that first time you launch, that's your first impression. You want it to be strong. You want it to uh, have an impact. Okay. All right. Write a business plan. Write a business plan. Here's here's ours, and this has been really helpful. We did this in California, we did it again here. It's, it's actually nine pages. The first one was like 60 pages. We just kept getting trimmed down to uh, very basic things that, that were useful. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about this. And, and by the way, the reason why you wanna uh, write a business plan is the reason why people write business plans anyway. Number one, it's put your vision down. Number two, how are you gonna get there? Number three, it helps you to think through the process, and particularly if you're working with a with a group that's, that's launching this thing is, is getting together your vision on what you're trying to do. But three, you also want to tell people outside, you know, people that are interested in your church. I, I'll give this business plan on occasion to people that are inquiring about the church, but I always take it when I'm, I'm talking to external funders. And you should get external funders. Why? Because it's good for you to, to get feedback from others and to see other people buy into what you're doing. So within a business plan, when I have a project overview, Philosophy of Ministries, trying to sing what you're going to do. Market analysis and plan. Now that's not trying to figure out who we are, market analysis. We already know who we are, but how are we going to reach people with what we're doing? A financial plan that's realistic, a growth strategy, and hard numbers and benchmarks. Now I've got benchmarks in here, and we go over these once a year. And it's been really cool to see that we've actually reached our benchmarks here way ahead of schedule. But we're reaching the benchmarks. If you don't have measurability, what's the point of having this? Now, I know I'm talking to a lot of business people here, and in your case, uh, this particular project seems rather small compared to a, a multi-billion dollar project you might be working on. But again, the tools are shared. The tools are shared. Use the tools. They're helpful. They're helpful to gauge where you're at and how to improve your church as you're going along. All right, principles. Tenaciously execute your vision. 
Never give up and always look for opportunities. Be flexible. Do we need to move into a new facility? Is our leadership not, not have enough full, fullness of breath? We need to bring new leaders on. You have to do that training. Okay, put it, put in the work and tenaciously work at it. Church planning is, is I say this, that it has a, a level of difficulty beyond regular church doing uh, because of the fluidity of it. Um, I remember one summer the recession hit, it was 2008 out in California, 45% of my congregation moved away during that summer. Okay, we'd grown up to about 75 people, and the last Sunday of August, we had 29 people, including kids, come to church. It was really depressing. But we had a plan. We knew what we wanted to do. We felt God had called us to do this, and we just kept pressing on. And what you're really doing, what you're really doing with the church planning phase, you want to have long-term realistic horizons, but you're buying time. It's all about time. It's time. The money you raise is buying time. The outreach you're doing is buying time. When you're church planning, it's all about buying time until you become stable or what we call particularized, where you have your own body of elders and you're, you're financially self-sufficient. But before that, everything's scrambling to buy time to get stability. All right, so I'm going to pull all this together. You know, it's kind of interesting. I, I didn't put these things in. Um, I put these things in before I saw the other speakers, but there's been some interesting coalescence. So uh, be heavenly minded, see your church plan through the eyes of spiritual warfare. Uh, expect weird things. You know, I had, I had a stalker, and I, I, I hadn't heard from this guy for 15 years. And the day I left seminary in St. Louis and headed back to California to plant the church, he started stalking me. And I remember telling my wife, I said, well, something good's going to happen out in California. And I had something similar happen when I came out here on the drive out to Texas. Uh, expect all kinds of obstructions and obstacles to arise. And when those things happen, don't be afraid to laugh. Because we shouldn't be scared of the dark side. And, it, and if you are finding yourself coming up against obstacles, it means you're doing something right and the devil doesn't want your church planted in that community. But be prepared for it. Be prepared for obstacles, and when they arise, uh, don't be overcome by them. Church planning is an entrepreneurial enterprise, and the church should be filled with and encouraging entrepreneurs. We've got a kingdom to build. That's been actually a very invigorating conference here, uh, watching Christian entrepreneurs talk about various aspects of, of how to expand the kingdom. And I hope the church becomes more accommodating to our business people. I remember when I first became a Christian, our church had a lot of entrepreneurs, Southern California in the 80s, lots of businesses percolating and starting, but they always felt kind of embarrassed about being in the church. And I remember guys saying, and I'd say, hey, what do you do for work? Well, yeah, I wanted to go to seminary, but I ended up starting a, a, an aircraft uh, wing uh, shop factory that, that builds wings for aircraft. What's wrong with that? That's a good thing. That's part of the kingdom. Priesthood of all believers. And so having a church that has entrepreneurs in it, too, is, is, can be a really good uh, positive feedback loop because in some sense there's a lot of shared affinities in, in all areas of life, pressing forward and expanding the kingdom of the part. So think about this. Yeah, I, I know, I know, John D. Rockefeller, maybe not the best example of, of the best theology in the world, but, and these are too loyal, but the church used to produce and spawn extraordinary people like this. Johnny Rockefeller, uh, inflation-adjusted, probably the wealthiest man that ever lived. Uh, he was an oil man. 
started from scratch selling oil, oil lamps, and then, and then he saw that the oil process for uh, automotive vehicles was going to be the future. And he got into that and expanded all over the place. And it's, it's amazing we see the board chart on, on Standard Oil. I mean, all the, every single company you can think of that has anything to do with automobiles has some connection to that. And it's part of this big octopus that he created. But he built churches, hospitals, universities. He taught Sunday school. I read somewhere, and if any of you have this uh, footnoted somewhere, I'd love to get it from you. But supposedly he built 1,200 churches. 1,200 churches. If you go to these old industrial towns like Gary, Indiana, um, they have all these shows on YouTube where they go in these hulks of cathedrals that are now defunct. But almost all these industrial towns, there's this big cathedral-like church in the middle of town. It's always built by the local industrialists. In that case, it was uh, American Steel that was in Gary, Indiana. The CEO of that, that company built that church. Okay, Lyman Stewart, you probably haven't heard about him. Uh, Lyman Stewart was also an oil man. But he and his brother, they actually financed the fundamentals. Okay, some of you probably want, what's that? Okay, it's where the word fundamentals comes from. Okay, fundamentals in our mind today is social Christian fundamentals. People that don't drink, people that don't dance. If you go to master's college, by the way, you're not supposed to dance. But you can engage in rhythmic movement. <laughs> I had kids from, the, from, their, from their school at my, my church, so they would have rhythmic movement parties. But anyway, fundamentalism. Um, fundamentalism originally is simply uh, Nicene Christianity. And during the first part of the 20th century, there was this liberalistic movement. Some places it was called the downgrade controversy. Uh, it was denying Nicene Creed orthodoxy. You know, virgin birth, uh, the deity of Christ, these kind of things. And this guy, Lyman Stewart and his brother, they went out and they, they hired the best theological minds of their day. And they produced, I think, 98 volumes. Each volume would be on a subject, like the deity of Christ, or it would be on the Trinity. And they put these libraries together, and I think they, had, they sent out like 68,000 libraries of these books to pastors all over the country. And it had a huge impact. It actually turned the tide on liberalism. But it was done by an oil. He also founded Biola University, which is Bible Institute of Los Angeles. And he also founded the Union Rescue Mission. This is one of the first uh, missions in America, urban mission to homeless people. So we used to spawn people like that. We don't see that too much anymore, right? These guys were at like, the top of the game, and they were Christians. Okay, you'll, you'll see um, Christian industrialists doing things, but you know the big guys that you see, Bill Gates, like we talked about earlier, they spend their time attacking the church, uh, trying to destroy the nuclear family and, and get population to, to decrease. So may we, as we plant churches, be aware of this. Seek to spawn. Encourage uh, business formation. Encourage family formation in, in dynastic settings. All of these types of things as we, we attempt to see God rebuild the church through us and rebuild the kingdom through us. So church planning is really about world domination one small step at a time. All right, since I'm the only speaker left, I was asked for taking questions. If you ask me a question for somebody else, uh, maybe I'll just make it up, and that'll be on them, because they didn't say it. But if you've got any questions, I'll, I'll try to answer them. Yes, sir? What do you mean by money ball? Okay, when I say money ball, I'm saying um, you've got a certain amount that hasn't been allocated yet. It's just basically a pile of venture capital. Yeah. Talk about making the church a central institution of society. What about the family? Well, here's 
families are actually constituent of the family, the church, because the church is actually the one family that's going to pass into eternity. But um, there's, you know, sphere sovereignty, Kuiper. Um, there's there's uh, overlapping stages of authority, and so we want to encourage uh, family formation as well. And the family has has a level of authority and autonomy of its own, but it falls under the church. And in fact, uh, this kind of gets off in a um, not necessarily church planning, but it's something you should think about. Don't be afraid of youth groups. Don't be afraid of young adults groups. Okay, just because people do it poorly doesn't mean they're bad. Um, when your kids reach the age of 12, um, it's just a known fact that their their primary uh, influence group is their peer group. Uh, you can try all you want, but um, they're going to gravitate that way. It's, a, it's a, a natural type of thing. What can you do? You can choose a peer group. You can control that factor. And so you want them to be around quality people, some of whom may end up being spouses. So, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. Anybody else? There's no space for a church. There's a lazy river. 
There's rec rooms, there's parks, no church. That's telling you something about, about what we think. Now, when you go up to uh, Pella, Iowa, uh, Vermeer, Vermeer, uh, they, they, supposedly Vermeer is the, the company that, uh, that came up with that, that uh, wheel that, that uh, pulls up uh, hay into those giant cylinders. Okay, big, huge company. I think they got like 10,000 employees, and the town has like 10,000 people, so they employ people from all around. They actually, the owner of that, purposely has chaplains on staff that are assigned for a certain number of people. Like, you got 500 people, you need to have a pastor on the work site. And, and they do Bible studies, and they, they provide uh, spiritual counsel. Uh, they're also there if they have an accident, that kind of thing. But I think those are ways uh, that great houses with the great house can work in concert. I agree with what you said about parents can't excommunicate children. Yes. But to Sarah Wyatt's point, you talked about that the succession of a house even mentioned disinheritance. Yeah. What should the parameters be for that, whether parents decide to pass on an inheritance to a child or not? Is it simply, like, does it have to be rank apostasy, or should there other factors? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I'm not super familiar with the... Uh, the concepts that he was talking about, the way he was, but I would say this, I, I think it would be unwise uh, for families, Christian families, to pass on wealth uh, without without having some, some parameters. You know, if you got a kid that, uh, you know, he goes off into drugs and, you know, he does whatever he wants and you give him the exact same amount that you're giving to your other kids, not only is it bad for that person, but it's also communicating something to your kids that, that have stayed faithful. So uh, some of the parameters that, that might exist under something like that is to have certain conditions on them doing things prior to receiving that that improve their character. Like uh, C.R. Wiley mentioned, and you saw this in, you may have seen this in, in the, the show Mad Men. Remember, the, a lot of the older guys that were in the organization were blue bloods, but they had to go in the military at some point in time. So forming a business. Uh, you want to get an inheritance, you got to have a, a business plan for something, or um, you need to uh, either go to college, trade school, what have you. There's certain things. Get married while start a family. Uh, each family is going to be different, and depending on what, what you have to give. But I, I don't think it's wrong to to have parameters to set on that. I don't know if I answered that at all. Gary, you kind of talked about uh, how important location is, and I I, I want to know just how the process was. Like, what should you be thinking through? when you, you pick a town or a suburb. Um, what went into that thought? And then also, another part of, of that is, is when you get a building or you're able to build a building, um, where are you looking to put that building within the spot that you, that you picked a plan? Well, that's a good question, because there's there's what you'd like to do and what you can do. Uh, so when we, we decided to come to Buda, uh, we wanted it on the central quarter of the 35 because we did realize that this church would be pretty unique around, at least say, uh, you know, somewhere midtown and down south, and then particularly south of us, there's, there's very, very little coverage of a church like we have. So we wanted to be accessible to a large group of people, and so we're on the 35 corridor. And then also, uh, the northern side of the city's been pretty heavily developed, and the south hasn't yet as developed as, as the northern part of the city, the northern suburbs, and so um, we saw a lot of potential for growth, and it was fairly affordable. Butte is still kind of a little bit more middle middle class and say like you know Brown Rock, Brown Rock on the other side or, or dripping on, on the west side. And and part of that is uh, being able to reach a broad demographic group too because 
You know, we don't want to just, like say we moved up uh, around Westlake or something like that, you get a pretty uh, tight demographic on a certain type of person. Whereas I think where we're at, it, it kind of makes it available to draw from. Working class people coming from the South, uh, people that are upper middle class, so that, so that we're actually reaching a broader group, which is ideologically aligned. Okay? We're not trying to, to do something to simply create variety. You don't want to do that. Okay? You, you see stuff like that where uh, one of my pet peeves is white Presbyterians singing African-American gospel music or um, guys from the suburbs who the worship services consist of bluegrass. And it's like, you're not from a holler, buddy. You know, so you don't want to create variety for the sake of variety, but but there, you could have a, an alignment of people that are of various social economic classes, but share a very common uh, worldview. And I think we are starting to really gel that. So you've got people that are tradespeople up to people that are, uh, you know, venture capitalists, but they all share a common interest in a worldview of positive eschatology, providing our kids with a Christian education, and, and seeing world transformation. So I don't know if that answered that, but. Yeah, and then the second part was, okay, so let me put it like this. Say you had unlimited resources oh, yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. put a building somewhere. What, where would you put that? If I had unlimited resources, I would want to put it at whatever the central place in the polis is. By the way, Matt Thomas. You can go to www.matthomas.org and donate $500,000 is the smallest limit. But uh, there was the, the spot that... Um, that Matt and his team found, it's it's this a piece of property that hasn't been developed yet, but it, it's geographically where they think the center of the region of Butte is going to be. It's, it's a lot further west than we think of, but that's where all the development's gonna go. Um, ideally, the problem with Buda is unlike uh, Kyle, and maybe the Dripping Springs, but some of these uh, Texas towns have central squares, and I would love to be right there. Like you go to the middle of the downtown of a, a, a town and you see the church and you see the steeple and it's like, that that's where I go when I need help. Um, unfortunately, Butte is like one street, there's a train station there, it's some random restaurants, but, um, and I can't think of a prospective spot there, but central, accessible to the region you serve. Anybody else? You just ask me. this, uh, uh, the reason why I became Pedro Baptist it wasn't because of the books I read. And I read a ton of them. I was a Reformed Baptist pastor, and I read everything, and I kept, oh, that's pretty good. That one's pretty good. It was going into the church that was doing it, and then I was like, oh, that makes total sense. 
So, so often the, the things that, uh, that we think, in fact, this is how most people learn. They learn by doing, they learn in communities with people. Um, you don't learn how to read and write and communicate just because you're taking a class. You're communicating with people. You're, you're speaking to people that are around you. These things all sort of gel together. And I, I think a lot of times things like that, theology, they're, they're communicating through the doing. And, and doing it well and, and, and doing it in a loving way. It's, it's not in your face, hey, you need to do this. Anybody else? Thank you. Uh, this is kind of an idea and a question if you've ever seen it, but when you talk about the way churches and being profitable to build, have you ever seen the church go partner with um, residential developers? Yes.